0: Hello and welcome in to another edition of the QB11 show. QB, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Doug? I am doing well, but I am up all night looking at this conference realignment stuff. Where are we going to end up? Where is the Pac-12 going to end up? Where are all the schools in the Pac-12 going to end up? With USC and UCLA jumping ship, leaving the Pac-12 and 95 years of history in this conference behind and going to the Big Ten as of 2024. What does that mean for the Pac-12? Will it exist at all? And what does it mean, particularly in our case, for the Oregon Ducks, as well as the rest of the schools in the conference? A lot to talk about on this topic.
1: Yeah, well, Doug, I can, I can tell you one thing. I can tell that you're definitely not panicking, because I haven't been getting minute-by-minute minute updates on every tweet by every insider, from every every network over the last 2 or 3 days on coaches alignment i think you're taking it really well i think that you're not obsessing over it at all and that you have really you have, you have a
0: control on the situation is that your sarcasm voice
1: that is my sarcasm voice
0: <laughs> yeah it's certainly been uh, a crazy day i know as for fans it's been a crazy couple of days i'm sure for the people inside inside Oregon and and the powers that be and making these decisions and looking at their options. It's been even more hectic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been, it's been stressful as a fan to look and watch and we've run a couple spaces and we've, we've talked about it in public a little bit, but, um, I would comfortably say that in terms of PAC 12 people, you and I have probably done the most research, um, and studied as this as much as you possibly could, given the circumstance Um, of anybody so i think i think we're in a pretty good position to talk about kind of where we think all the different pac-12 schools fall in realignment what happens with the pac-12 does it cease to exist or um or, or does it kind of get crumbled back together somehow so
0: real quick before we get into the school by school breakdown just a little bit of background Uh, First off, if you go back to our very first episode of the QB11 show, we talked about this possibility on that episode four or five weeks ago. So for those of you who haven't listened to that yet, there's some background information there that may be helpful as we get into this conversation. And also a lot of other good conversations we had on that on that edition as well. Um, Secondly, you know, let's talk a little bit about the money situation. So. The the Big Ten and their new TV deal, now including USC and UCLA, is expected to pay out somewhere around hundred million dollars per year per school. Contrast that to what's happening in the Pac-12. The the rumored numbers that that I think John Wilner and others had published a few weeks back that the new deal, including USC and UCLA, could have been in the range of forty-five to fifty-five million per year per school. So roughly half of the Big Ten payout. Now, of course, with USC and UCLA leaving, even if the remaining PAC schools stick together and and negotiate a new deal, that payout is going to be far, far less. It might be less than the current payout, which is around $31 or $32 million per year. So from the context of everything that's going on, this is about money first and foremost, because that's a that that $70 million difference is the difference between being able to pay more coaches, more money, keep the coaches you want fund non-revenue sports, um, you know, and all the other things that you need to do uh, program-wise to remain competitive in the new landscape.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a good way to frame the conversation. Um, understanding that even had the Pac-12 stuck together, it would have been playing with uh, a, the deck stacked against them. Um, now with it almost assuredly falling apart, I think by both my opinion and yours, it kind of makes sense that these teams are choosing to go in different directions and frankly associate with their peer groups more from a brand and revenue standpoint as opposed to having maybe two or three brands at the top of a conference carrying the load um, and kind of subsidizing the rest. So I think that's a good place to start and maybe we should, uh, I don't know, Doug, where do you want to start?
0: We can start with the Arizona schools. Um, This one is... Fairly straightforward to me, but there's maybe a couple of interesting wrinkles. There was some reports um, in regards to Arizona State that they may have a positive enough valuation to make a potential jump into the Big Ten, along with if the Big Ten was really going to go large and and go to 24 schools, let's say. I don't see that as very likely. Um, I haven't seen that widely reported anywhere. Um, I think what has been reported pretty consistently and we can just lump Arizona and Arizona State together, in my mind, is that both of those schools, you know, applying for, you know, being interested in jumping into the Big 12. And what's interesting about that is there was some reports a year or so ago that the Arizona schools may may start looking to join the Big 12 anyway, even just particularly before Texas and Oklahoma bolted. Is that they may have been looking at that would be a better setup for them both uh, over the long term than staying in in the Pac-12 even with UCLA and USC in it. So I think that makes the most sense for them. They they recruit Texas in those areas more so than than the West Coast anyway. I think they're more aligned there and, and with the big with the Pac-12 potentially disintegrating. That seems to be the smart money for both of them. They're unlikely to find a landing spot in either the SEC or the Big Ten, so they need to figure out where they can land that benefits them the most.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think that um, this is one that makes sense from a regional standpoint as well with the with the Big 12 schools. Obviously, you have some outliers. You have a school in Orlando. You have a school in Cincinnati and you know, Ohio. Um but regionally it makes sense. I think that it'll be like a really parity filled league. Um, Obviously the conference payouts are going to be, that's actually a a curious one. Now, if you add the Arizona schools and possibly one or two more from the PAC 12, do you think it stays pretty much in, in lockstep with what they've been receiving from the PAC 12 over the last decade?
0: I think so. I, I think so. I think with the moves that the big 12 made, You know, with Houston and Cincinnati and BYU, who has a strong national following, and of course, uh, UCF and Orlando, I I think that that already was going to bolster their value in the next line of negotiations, and and I've heard that they were actually expecting the Big 12... you know, per school revenue to not drop off considerably in the next round, even without Texas and Oklahoma. Obviously, it's not going to go up like it would have if you know significantly if those schools had stayed aboard. But I think they're they're looking at status quo or maybe slightly less. So I think from that standpoint, the Big Twelve was ahead of the Pac twelve already. So if they can maintain status quo or even lose a couple million a year, that's essentially status quo for for any Pac twelve schools that join the Big. Big 12 as well so I think that would be in pretty good shape relative to the current standpoint
1: yeah and I think that that's a competitive place to be I mean it's not you're not going to be competing with the richest schools in the country in the SEC in the Big Ten um, but you're also not getting demoted to the Mountain West or um, being put into an uncertain situation where you might not have like a real clear landing spot so I think at least guaranteeing that you're going to be put in a position as an athletic department to receive the the Uh, media revenue required to maintain your your current spending means that you're going to be playing football, competitive football. Um, And, again, I personally, like, I'm a sicko. I'll watch every game that's on on a Saturday. But I think that the new Big 12, especially with the Arizona schools added, is an extremely intriguing product because there's just so much parity. There's no, like, real – there's no team that I would expect to dominate that conference just going in. I mean, I guess Baylor and Oklahoma State – um, possibly have, have an upper hand. I think Gus Malzahn's doing good things at at uh, uh, UCF, and, and who knows how long Luke Fickle will stay at, at Cincinnati. But I just think it's a league that's going to be really competitive and kind of um, be a fun conference to watch on a week-by-week basis. So it's a good spot to land. Um, Arizona is an AAU school. Um, for those who don't know, AAU stands for – the American, uh, I apologize, the Association of American Universities. It's an accredited, it's a research accreditation, so, um, that is a requirement to get into the Big Ten unless your name is Notre Dame. Uh, ASU does not have that accreditation there, but they are a, a Carnegie R1 research institution, which is another uh research accreditation, so they'll fit in academically in the, in the Big 12. Um, Arizona actually being probably towards the top of the Big 12 from an academic standpoint. But culturally, I think it'll be a really, really good fit um and to me, this is not a win or lose situation. This seems like a break even, but a break even is not a bad thing for for Arizona and Arizona state, given the kind of the status of their football programs going into the future.
0: yeah, I agree. Shall we move on to let's say Utah? Yeah,
1: let's talk about the mountain schools. I think they can probably be bucketed together, but I think they're a little more different than the Arizona schools, so Starting with Utah, Utah is a school that I feel the worst for their fans probably of any fan base in the Pac-12, and and we'll, there will be a caveat to that that we get to later. But they've been they've been out punching their weight pretty much almost immediately since they joined the conference. They went through a little bit of a transition period. They've been super happy to be here. They've been wonderful to interact with. Um, And it's just one of those situations where unfortunately their brand hasn't been given the time to grow to the point where they're probably going to be heavily considered by the big 10 and certainly not by the sec. And I don't know that they carry enough weight to really change the calculus for the ACC in any meaningful way. So to me, I think that they'll follow the Arizona schools to the big 12. And I think that they will be really, really good in that conference. In fact, I wouldn't, put it past, depending on how long Kyle Whittingham is going to remain as their head coach for them to be one of the more dominant teams in that league going forward.
0: Yeah, I agree. And just talking a little bit about the big 12 or the new big 12, if you will, I agree with you, like the amount of like competitiveness and parity across and up and down that league could be a really compelling story. Like it's hard to imagine just looking at the teams in there, there's not a Texas, there's not a USC, there's not, there's not that dominant Ohio State or Alabama program that's just going to run the league, right? You're going to have, like, mini runs, right, where Cincinnati maybe is dominant for a couple of years, and then maybe it's Utah, and then maybe it's, uh, you know, UCF or or Oklahoma State. like. But, you know, the top six, seven of that league every single year could be really, really tight. And and that's compelling to TV networks, too, because if you have if if you have one school and a bunch of dogs, there's a lot of dog games in there. If you have a lot of schools that all draw like none of them draw viewership that the one or two premier schools would. But if they all draw reasonably well and they're all playing competitive games and are are up for bowl bids and eight and four, nine and three seasons. That's going to draw viewership across the, the, the landscape of all of that TV inventory, and that's valuable in and of itself.
1: Well, and I think that with the, with the schools that we're talking about going to the Big 12, the, the way that it's currently structured, there is no perennial top 25 recruiting teams in that league. I think that with the right coach, Arizona State can be. And so Arizona State, I think specifically, with a good hire, is uniquely positioned to be one of the better recruiting teams in that league. Um, especially with the Phoenix market and some of the NIL opportunities that that could provide. I think that both the Arizona schools and Utah are in a position to go into that league and instantly be in the top half as opposed to being in the bottom, well, outside of Utah, but the Arizona schools are kind of like around that six, seven, eight spot in the Pac-12. So to me, I think that this is an opportunity for both of those teams in Arizona and then obviously Utah to continue to win, but to kind of like raise their standards for winning a little bit
0: yeah i agree with you going back to utah with what you said at, at the beginning about this an opportunity for them to really be a dominant team in this league in that in that new league um and and continue to build on the momentum they've they've had 10 years of memento building in the pac-12 and that doesn't have to all go by the wayside they that can catapult them into this new big 12 and really be a valuable uh, jumping off point for them
1: yeah, yeah, I, I'm, this is a league I'm actually really excited to watch. To me, I think the Big 12 is more compelling TV than the ACC is going to be. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to seeing how these teams shake out, especially with the group of five teams that have jumped up, teams like Houston, teams like Cincinnati, UCF, and then you obviously have BYU as an independent going. You get the BYU-Utah rivalry built into the conference now. Um, it's it's going to be a really fun league to watch.
0: Yeah, so let's pivot over to Colorado then. Um, Their situation is not quite the same as Utah's.
1: No, they're currently at a low for their program, possibly historically, which is really weird to see because in the 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, Colorado was like a national title contender. Like They were a legitimate perennial contender nationally, and it's just been... So mismanaged, and the hilarious, most ironic piece to this, Doug—I don't know if you thought about this—is Mike Bone is the one that hollowed out the Colorado Athletic Department. He's the one that made these three consecutive garbage hires that got them to where they are, and he's now the athletic director at USC, who's taken them to the to the Big Ten. So it's a situation where Colorado really needs to show some kind of administrative commitment to football; otherwise, they're going to be a bottom feeder in this league. But because of the market they're in, because of the the historical brand that Colorado is, I think that they can get it turned around. And I think in a league where there's more parity, it'll be easier for them to compete and build their brand back up to where, not where it once was, because I don't know that they'll ever be national title contenders again, but being a consistently competitive force in that league. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that they won the, they won the South and played Washington in the Pac-12 title game Colorado is a really appealing place. It's a great school, another AAU school, in the, which is basically in the Denver market with Boulder not being too far away. I, I want to see Colorado succeed, and I actually think that the Big 12 is a better opportunity for them to succeed than the Pac-12 has been.
0: For sure. I think Colorado has never been able to successfully pivot their recruiting to the West Coast. And that's really, really hurt their chances in this Pac twelve and, and being back in the Big Twelve in a more natural recruiting footprint, you know, with Texas in the Midwest, you know, area, I think could really help them um, you know, land more talent, start to build that program back up. And like you said, they can be they can be a bowl team, you know, in that conference and within a reasonable amount of time given the right leadership and direction and coaching hires. Um and I think they're you know in the Pac12 it's hard to it's hard to see a path where they could have ever gotten out of the basement but i i see that path for them in the Big12 in the new Big12 well
1: i think they were on the path but i think that because of the revenue differential between the Pac12 and other conferences they they lost their their chance right away i mean they made a great hire in Mel Tucker things were trending in the right direction right away and they just lost him because they couldn't afford to to keep up and to bid so it's one of those things where it's like if you don't have tv money to sit to spend on buyouts and to hire coaches and to retain good coaches you're in a position where when you get down it's a lot harder to crawl out and your forward momentum can be stunted and stopped so quickly so i'm really hoping in a in a a bigger big 12 with additional parity that that colorado can get back to their roots of recruiting uh recruiting the state of, of texas well and um and, and hopefully find, find themselves in a more competitive position.
0: Agreed. Do we want to talk about Oregon next or do we want to put them off?
1: I think we should just work up the, up the West coast here. I think we should talk about the LA schools and kind of what went into their decision a little bit um, specifically with UCLA. Would, would you care to do that or do you want to skip over them?
0: Yeah, sure. Obviously it starts with money, right? And it goes back to what we were talking about before. You know, everyone in this conference and everyone in college football who's not in the Big Ten or the SEC is all staring down the barrel of the same problem. A revenue gap that was, you know, a couple of years ago, 10 to $15 million a year is now growing to going to be 50 to $70 million a year. And that is, that is unsustainable for any program in the country who wants to compete at the highest levels of college football. So that's really what it comes down to, first and foremost. Um, you know, UCLA has not been a, a, a program that has been well run or well managed. You know, at the athletic department levels or at the university levels for I don't know twenty years. Uh, you know, they kind of had a couple of okay seasons. You know, back in the late two thousands and early twenty twenty tens, but you know, even that was you know eight and four, nine and three. Made a couple of Pac twelve title games, got blown out. Um, so. The question I have about UCLA is not why they win. Obviously, they're, they're going for the money. This is also going to allow them to continue to support a wide range of non-revenue sports uh, at, a, at a high level, which is, I think, important to their athletic department and important to the university. Same thing for USC. Um, but the question I have is, will this change their commitment to football? Will this make them actually start caring enough to compete at the highest levels in football again and start investing in, you know, coaching hires and coaching staff and, and other support personnel and all the things that real football programs in, at the elite levels of college football invest in? Or will they just be happy to take the paycheck, you know, go six and six and, you know, fund the rest of their sports and hang out at the beach? That's the question I'm curious about seeing. Yeah,
1: but at least you have the option, right? Like, they have a seat at the table. And so I had this argument with a fan on Twitter yesterday about Nebraska. like, oh, well, Nebraska made the wrong decision going to the Big Ten. Did they? Because here's the deal. Every program falls into a rut. Everybody loses for a while. Everybody makes a bad hire. Sometimes programs make two or three bad hires in a row. But here's the deal. When you're down and you finally make that good hire – and you, you're crawling your way back up that totem pole, nobody can come in and steal your coach if you have the same money that they do. And so even if UCLA stinks, if they stick with, stick with you, Chip Kelly for too long, whenever they decide to get their, you know what, in order, and, and they do make a good hire, because of their position in, LA, in the LA market and in the Big Ten now, they're, they're going to be very difficult to poach. This isn't going to be a, a Mel Tucker situation where Colorado is just finally getting the wheels turning and getting some forward momentum, and then they lose it all immediately because someone just comes in and rips their coach away from them. So I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have questions about the short-term viability of Chip Kelly and the commitment to football with UCLA. But the, the deal is, is that you're going to have $100 million a year that you didn't have before. Rolling into that football program. Whenever you decide to flip that switch on and go go spend some money and hire some coaches, and if they start winning, they're going to be able to maintain that momentum. They're not going to be in a situation where your coach is just getting ripped away to go to a program in the SEC.
0: Absolutely. As as far as Nebraska goes, I don't know how, how anyone could seriously ask that question right now. If you didn't move to the Big Ten, you're sitting where Oklahoma State or Texas Tech. Or one of those, whatever other Big Twelve you know team is you're talking about right now, like that would be a, a much much worse place to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, not that Nebraska would ever be at risk of being left out just because of how rabid their fan base is. I mean, even with a four win season, Nebraska is a top twenty most watched team last year, right? So that fan base shows up, packs the stadium, no matter how good or bad they are. But it doesn't it it doesn't make. It makes it easier for Nebraska at some point to be a good football program when they're when they're eating at the big boy table and they have the money to spend. And so, um, in, in a world where there's going to be such a vast difference between the haves and have-nots now, it, you, just being at the table, even if you're losing up, up up front and you're not winning as many games, and in the case of UCLA, you're going six and six or five and seven, that's fine for a short period of time because you have the resources. To get the 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 ship on the right path again.
0: Absolutely. I guess that brings us to USC.
1: Yeah, the uh should we play the the Empire music from Star Wars? I think Uh, we should. They're gonna be the like the big evil villain in all of this, but frankly, they did what exactly anybody else would have done in the same situation. They had a bunch of value that they weren't capitalizing on in the Pac-12, but the Pac-12 was unable to give back to them um, because of incompetence at the conference and frankly at the athletic department level at usc over the last 10 15 maybe even not really probably about 15 years since pete carroll left so i i don't blame them for making this move this was the smart move for them to make they were never at risk of being left out but if you're going to make the commitment to hire lincoln riley to play the nil game to build out your support staff why would you not go take all that extra revenue that you can pump back into the program? There's, there's no reason for them to sit here and subsidize a bunch of programs who don't care about football, which we're going to start talking about here in a minute with the Northern California schools. But there, there's just there's no reason for it. So I, I think this was a smart decision, um, a very obviously smart decision for USC. Um, I, I think it's fitting that they brought UCLA with them. They've secured the LA market for the Big Ten. They're 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 both AAU schools. I mean, it all it makes sense on every level, and uh, I think it's going to be really compelling television to watch them play a Big Ten schedule.
0: Yeah, as we talked about on that first podcast, USC was always going to be the catalyst for this move. They were always going to be the team that had to move first. Um, so that's not surprising, and and I agree with you. It's totally the smart move. I don't blame them. You know in the least and nobody should i mean you have to follow the money and you have to do what's best for your school because every school is doing that exact same thing um yeah i mean it'll be great to watch them compete in that conference um and see how they do stacked up against those schools and lincoln's Gotta earn his paycheck and the athletic department's gotta make the investments that 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 school has not made for a very long and I know they've already started it the last year, you know, the last six months, but they need to continue to make investments that they've been putting off for for a very long time. But I mean, who isn't gonna wanna watch, you know, USC versus Michigan or, you know, Ohio State on a regular basis? I mean, there's there's just there's a lot of good football line matchups available in that in that conference now and not that there wasn't before but even more so and we could talk
1: about this from more of a macro perspective too at the end but i just think that adding the la market to the big 10 actually pushes the big 10 ahead of the sec maybe not in the short term but definitely in the long term
0: oh totally it's a power move and it's the power move that the big 10 should have made was smart to make and and i'm Kind of surprise they made in some senses because the Big Ten has generally been a, uh, not the league that wants to make waves, right? They've been more reactionary than proactive. Um, but I think this is reactionary to some degree, right? This is a reaction to what the SEC did with Oklahoma and Texas. And going after USC and then gobbling up UCLA to make sure you get both sides of the LA market was an absolute power move. They now have a conference that stretches from New York to LA, has Three of the four, four of the five largest markets in the country, um, they surround and kind of box out the SEC from from the rest of the country. And and if they go bigger to where we think and hope they do, they're really going to be a a four time zone conference, and and they're going to kind of box the SEC into being, you know, Texas to Florida and and you know up to the Mason Dixon line. And and that's a strategic advantage, you know, for the for the Big Ten um in a lot of ways, and particularly in that money, that TV money deal. And I think they I think their deal, their next deal could be bigger than the SEC's next deal. Um and it certainly will be pretty close to on par. And like you said, if they're not bigger, if they're not sending more monies to each of their universities, you know, right away, it's only a matter of time, I think, before that happens. It's also a big power move on what the future of the playoff looks like, and we can talk about that at the end too.
1: Yeah, 100% agree. I think just the SEC is living off of huge brands and really rabid fan bases in a super football crazed part of the country. But from an advertisers' perspective, the Big Ten now has farly out, like or, or vastly farly. It's not a real word. Vastly out expanded the uh, the the SEC because not only did they go coast to coast and not only did they get the biggest markets, but they got some of the most affluent markets. And so the type of advertisers that you're appealing to on Fox with the big 10 or on NBC or CBS or Apple or whoever it is, when, when you're advertising in an LA market in a Bay area market in a New York city or Chicago market is a little bit different than who you're advertising to in Fayetteville or Starkville or Auburn, or you know what I'm talking about? So it's, it's one of those things where I just think that the, the strategic vision to box in the SEC into a hyper regional standpoint and then also expand into more affluent markets is really, really brilliant by Fox in the Big Ten. So, um, And, I, and I, again, I think it was also a cultural fit, like where you have a bunch of AAU schools and a bunch of upper campuses that look at the world from the same place um, who who would be fine affiliating with one another. So let's move to the Bay, where things get a little foggy and froggy, and I'm not really sure what the outlook is. Um, And I think there's for Stanford, there's obviously a pretty wide variance of possibilities. For Cal, I have no clue what's going to happen to Cal, and I would actually really love to hear your opinion, because I think Cal's in a position where if it wasn't for the fact that they were having to do a bunch of debt service on that stadium reconstruction that they did, they might just shut everything down.
0: Yeah, Cal Cal is the mystery of the Pac-12 to me. In all of this, the one that I'm I'm sitting here going, where's their landing spot? I, I guess their best possible hope is the Big Ten wants to go really, really, really big, get both Bay Area schools, go to 24 teams, and brings them along. I, I, I guess I that seems so unlikely to me. But I mean, I I have heard that floated. I don't know how credible it is or how likely it is. I don't think it's likely. But if that doesn't happen, and the Pac-12 doesn't survive, they're not going to the Big 12. They're not going to the ACC. They're not going to the Mountain West. I I mean, I guess they try to go independent and play some weird hybrid schedule of Mountain West and Big 12 teams or something. Uh, Or they fold up. I I don't know where else their options are. I I don't see it.
1: I've been doing some research on, on their revenue numbers um and their expenses over the last few years and they're consistently running a deficit like they are running they're not just running a deficit but in 2019 there were a 50 million dollar deficit with a 24 million dollar gift from the state to help bail them out so they really ran a 75 million dollar deficit in fiscal year 2019. i don't know how that's sustainable at all no one goes to their games they're pretty bad right now no one's watching them on television I just think that that market is just wholly uninterested in football, at least in, at least in the Bay Area teams for football. I I don't know where they go from here. I think this is going to be the first Power Five school that we see just fold up shop and just call it quits. Like I don't, I don't think upper campus and the administration supports the the athletic department in any real meaningful way. Obviously they're running writing checks right now to kind of help them, but I don't I don't see that sustaining. I think they see themselves more as an academic institution. I think what you said is right. I I think that they're they think them of themselves too highly to go to the Big Twelve, for obvious cultural, political, and academic reasons. I think that they also think that of the of the Mountain West, and I don't see a. I really don't see a way they get an invite to the Big Ten. So independence seems kind of like the only avenue for Cal, and that's a scary thing in twenty twenty two because building a schedule in the months of October and November is going to be damn near impossible unless you have some kind of scheduling agreement with the conference. But at that point, with these conferences getting as large as they are, why would anybody make that agreement with you?
0: Right, especially Cal.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're not Notre Dame. You're not bringing eyeballs to the table. So why would, why would the, the Big 12 make an agreement with you when they're already going to have 20-ish teams?
0: Is the FCS an option, or is that just losing more money? I I think it's
1: far more like again. I don't really know. the The weird thing is, is they spent like Cal is a program that 15 years ago, like with Tedford, when they had Aaron Rodgers and 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 Deshaun Jackson and Marshawn Lynch, like they were a legitimate football program that was drawing eyes and they had they had a full stadium every week. Now that place is empty every week, and nobody cares. And it's the weirdest thing. I I, I really think it's a case study on what happens when your administration actively tries to sabotage your athletic department. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see them going down a level. I think that it's far more likely they just give up on sports altogether. Maybe they just keep the Olympic sports only.
0: Yeah, I could see that. So that leaves us with Stanford next, and I think their fortunes are much stronger than Cal's.
1: Yeah, well, so Stanford's one of the schools that probably could make it if they went independent. Um, I could see a situation where if the Big Ten goes to 20, um, assuming that the 20 would be Stanford, Oregon, Notre Dame, and Washington, um, then they're obviously in. It's a weird situation, though. They're getting drug along, and everybody loves them because academically they're probably the best school in the country. Um, and they bring a ton of prestige and, and research funding to a, to a conference, but from a football perspective, they couldn't be less interested in playing it at the highest level. Like all of the rules that their administration have made that have handicapped them on the recruiting trail. Like, some of that's starting to change. Um, the transfer rules, the no exceptions for athletes for grad school. That's causing anyone who red shirts to most likely not be able to stay for their senior season. Like Stanford has been like. They are old school. Like They are not going to be doing the pay-for-play stuff. They're not going to be doing the NIL stuff. If it comes organically, great. If not, it is what it is. You're getting a Stanford education. You should be happy with that is their outlook. I don't know how that fits in the modern college football world, but I still think that they have a really good shot just because of how massive of an academic brand it is and where it's located in Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, they're the biggest anomaly in in college sports, to be honest, right? Um, Because they just, on paper, their football program just has no value at all. And yet there's a real strong chance that Notre Dame and USC are both dragging them along into the Big Ten because of their traditional matchups and rivalries. And, And you could see the Big Ten taking them because of those things, as well as because of the academics and the research and the endowment, but also the President's Cup 25 straight president cup wins and all the olympic sports success and everything else i know that doesn't add monetary value but it does add prestige that that the people in the big 10 love probably just as much as the people in the pac-12 love so
1: if you were polling athletic directors they'd probably all say no chance we want stanford if you're polling school presidents they're all banging their desk get us stanford so it's one of those things where stanford scares me because. If you're an Oregon fan and they only want to go to 18, Stanford's a legitimate threat to be that 18th. They have a, they have a very, especially because, no, again, you have a traditional rival with Notre Dame. If you're trying to leverage Notre Dame into a situation where they don't have a choice but to join, removing another game from their schedule like they did with basically USC, that, 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 that to me is the scariest outcome for Oregon is that the Big Ten goes to, goes to 18 and Stanford is the 18th school. And so yeah. it's, it's crazy that a school that doesn't care, isn't trying, is never going to try, and is never going to push to be an elite football program like the other schools that are joining the conference are, is hilarious, but it's the reality of, of the richest endowment. I mean, the endowment is larger than the GDP of several countries. So it's, it's one of those things where Stanford is just a completely unique entity um and it's really desirable for a lot of reasons that don't make sense to football fans but make sense to school presidents and chancellors
0: yeah well said i think you you took the words out of my mouth on all of that i think if you're an oregon fan and a washington fan you have to be hoping the big 10 wants to go to 20 because if their state if they go to 18 and notre dame is one of them then at best case, Oregon and Washington are fighting for the, the last spot, but at worst case, Notre Dame takes it, and, and both Oregon and Washington are left holding the bag. And
1: yeah, Stanford.
0: But yeah, Stanford I, I,
1: are, yeah, I agree with you. So let's transition. Before we talk about Oregon and Washington, let's transition to the land-grant schools. Let's talk about Oregon State and Washington State because I think that they're kind of a natural pairing in the same way the Arizona and Mountain Schools were. Where, where, do, you, where do you see the Oregon State and, and Washington State ending up in all of this?
0: Yes, I think there's a couple of scenarios here as well. I think, to me, they're probably the ones trying to hold up the pack, whatever, as more than anyone right now, because that's their best hope: is that the pack survives in some format and they and they stay in it. Um, I think if that doesn't happen, their next best hope is for a Pac-12 Big 12 merger that keeps them in whatever that new conference looks like, which would be some massive, you know, 20 to 22 team conference, probably. Um, So I think they're, they're driving the boat for that. And there is rumor that the big 12 and PAC 12 are meeting on Tuesday to discuss such a merger. So I think that's where Washington state and Oregon state are, are, that's their first two options. I think option three for them is okay. The PAC 12 dies, the merger's off. We're going to apply to the Big Twelve. I just don't see the Big Twelve taking them. I don't see the Big Twelve looking at that and saying that's worth it to us. They don't bring value, and the Big Twelve will be so big by then. They're already going to be at sixteen. Uh, sorry, eighteen if they add the four corner schools. Do they really want to go to twenty for Washington State and Oregon State? Like, where's the value there? There's probably Mountain West schools that are worth more to the Big Twelve than than those two would be. And, and I say that. Like I know that sounds disrespectful, but it's just the reality of the economy of the situation. Um, So failing that third option, if, if they can't keep the Pac-12 going, they can't get the Pac-12-Big 12 merger, the Big 12 doesn't want them, then I think the Mountain West is all they're left with.
1: Yeah, and maybe they just rebrand the Mountain West as the Pac- Pac-12 or whatever they want to call it. But ultimately, I, that's where... It- it's one of those situations where it's sad because I know Oregon State and Washington State fans, I'm sure they feel horrible about this, and this isn't where they want to be. But from a athletic budget standpoint, from a funding and revenue standpoint, like a TV media deal, what they can generate standpoint, it's just a better fit. They can be so much more competitive. In fact, I could see them being like very, very, very strong teams in that league. Yeah. But I just... I don't think that their brands are particularly valuable to the TV networks in a larger setting. So it's a tough situation. I know that playing Boise State and San Diego State isn't what Washington State and Oregon State fans are used to when they've been playing USC and Oregon and Washington, but I just think that ultimately that's where they end up and I don't think it's a horrible thing. Like I think it's a great I think it's a great fit. I think that they'll win more. I think it'll be competitive. Um, I think they'll have a lot of chances to win that league but it's going to cut back on what they get from they're going to get less money on a yearly basis paid out to them this is one of those sad situations where there is no bike break even they're going to be making less they're not going to be getting $32 million a year they're going to be getting the, the Mountain West payout which might improve a little bit with them in the conference but it'll be negligible relatively So I I think you're going to see those athletic departments have to scale back a little bit.
0: Yeah. And as much as I think you're right, that ultimately for the football programs of those two schools, they'll, they'll win, they'll win more games. They'll be more competitive at a, at a conference championship level. And ultimately I think there's going to be a, a group of five playoff or whatever the group of five is ends up being, I think there's going to be a playoff for that level of football at some point, you know, 10, 15 years from now. And they, they'll be able to compete for that and compete in that down the road. I think where it may hurt those schools even more is the other sports. The sport, you know, like OSU baseball, OSU basketball. Um, you know, those, those programs have been very competitive. The women's basketball particularly has been at Oregon State. Those have been very competitive programs. You know, Oregon, baseball, Oregon State baseball has won three national titles in the last 15 years. And I think those programs are really going to be the ones who suffer uh, the most.
1: Yeah, but it isn't like you can't have supernationally competitive group of five baseball teams. We've seen those all the UC schools put together really competitive teams over the years. So I don't know that it's a death wish for baseball, but I do agree that um, it's going to hurt the Olympic sports. Funding overall is going to be down even for football, but I think it will also put them in a situation where they can win at that level where they really were always going to be bottom half at this level
0: yep agreed
1: and that leaves us with uh kind of the elephants in the room oregon and washington um a really unique situation where you've got two of the bigger fan bases probably the second and third biggest fan bases on the west coast uh clutching their pearls in anticipation to find out what the big 10 is going to do doug you want to kind of walk us through the timeline of the last few days and kind of go through the original application, the pause button by the Big Ten, the Notre Dame stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So obviously USC, UCLA news broke Thursday morning that they were going to the Big Ten. That was finalized by the end of Thursday. Uh, I think even that same day, you know, rumors started coming out that there may be more teams from the pack. Oregon and Washington being rumored as two of the most likely ones. Obviously, Stanford has kind of come into play more recently with the Notre Dame news. Um, And then there was some reporting that they had applied. I don't know that that has ever been confirmed, but it seems likely. Um, There was reporting that the Big 12 had told them, not now, wait, you're on pause. Some people have taken that and run with it as meaning not now, meaning not this round of of expansion, I think most people, myself included, read that as meaning not now, today, we're waiting on Notre Dame. And once Notre Dame decides, then, you know, then we'll give you an answer. So they could very well move to the Big Ten at the same time USC and UCLA does. So I, that's on the table. I think that's actually the most likely option for both Oregon and Washington, but it's far from certain. Um, I think you know as as news started coming out you know Friday Saturday about Notre Dame potentially moving over to the Big 10 then that's kind of you connected the dots between you know Oregon and Washington having to wait and Notre Dame applying because if Notre Dame goes that's an odd number of teams then there's been a lot of speculation about okay does does Notre Dame go and then the Big 10 only add one more team to go to 18 and then if it's if that's true Is it Oregon or Washington? Only one gets in. Well, now maybe it's Stanford, and maybe neither one gets in. Well, maybe they take Stanford, Oregon, and Washington, and they go to twenty. What if Notre Dame says no? Does the Big Ten still add Oregon and Washington, or do they add Oregon, Washington, Utah, and somebody else, Stanford, let's say, and go to twenty? Or do they just say nope? We're good at sixteen. We're going to stand pat, and we'll reevaluate, you know, eight to ten years from now. So there's a lot of range of options. for both of those schools and and the fans of Oregon and fans of Washington are are all sitting in in a very similar situation and there's actually been a lot of uh, camaraderie between the two rivals um over the last few days on this because you know we may need each other to both get the golden ticket.
1: Yeah, if I was handicapping this uh based on everything that I've read it seems that Oregon is is in a really good spot to either be the 18th or be part of the the, the total 20. Um, so I think but I, I also think ultimately that Oregon and Washington are going to move together regardless of what happens. I think that there's alignment by school presidents and athletic directors right now in, in where things are going. Um, my, my biggest hope um, as an Oregon fan is that this goes to 20. We get Stanford. Oregon, and Washington all in. Um, and I think that that puts, you, you got all the most valuable West Coast brands plus Stanford um, for their academic stuff and for Notre Dame's purposes. And, and it, it makes a really clean scheduling model at 20. Um, but from a revenue standpoint, does do those schools with Notre Dame bring enough to the table to not shrink distributions? That's the big question. And that's a question where Some people have tried to pose the answer as absolutely not because of the valuation that Oregon and Washington got as Pac-12 members. But I will say this for the umpteenth time. What Oregon and Washington are worth in the Pac-12 and what they're worth in the Big Ten are very different numbers because the quality of opponent on a weekly basis is different. The draw of that opponent is different. But not only that, this is not as much about okay, well, obviously you're adding inventory from a television standpoint to put or those additional games by adding two teams or four teams on on TV. You, you're adding that inventory for the whole conference. So everybody's going to play in those new slots. So it's not just Oregon and Washington and Stanford and Notre Dame that would be playing in those two additional slots. It's the whole league. And I think that there's such a premium for that type of league with the brands that exist in that league, that it would be large enough of a distribution to compensate for whatever Oregon, Washington, or Stanford don't bring individually. What are your thoughts on that, Doug?
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think the, the, uh, one of the other reasons for that is these television networks have slots they need to fill. And right now, if you're at the bottom end of the big 10 pecking order for those slots, which right now the bottom end of that pecking order is the streamers, Amazon and Apple, and ESPN. And ESPN needs to fill these time slots. They have ESPN, they have ESPN two, they have ESPN Plus, they've got ABC. They only have so many games, you know, already locked up. They need they need time slots. And and so they're looking at the calculus going like, okay. We can pay the Big Ten for a couple of games, which allows the Big Ten to add these extra schools. Or we can say, no, the Big Ten doesn't add the extra schools, and now we're forced to go pay the Big 12 or the Pac-12 or whatever's left of the Pac-12 for these games. And that's a much lower value to, to ESPN. Would you rather televise Oregon versus Iowa or would you rather televise, you know, texas tech versus utah or 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 colorado or something it's a no-brainer
1: yeah it is and so that's that's the one piece of this i think has been getting missed by some um but i also understand that it the the numbers for the big 10 are likely better just adding notre dame plus one like for on a per school basis the only thing that I think might change that math a little bit is that if you have enough West coast schools, you could still have that seven o'clock Pacific time time slot with ESPN, which they might be willing to pay a premium for that. I'm not sure, uh, but that's, that's pure speculation, but just going really deep down the rabbit hole of, of possibilities here. Um, I, I think, Oh man, I don't know. I want to believe that we'll end up in the big 10, um, I think that the Oregon and Washington brands are valuable but it's going to come down to Notre Dame and I if if there's no Notre Dame I really don't see the Big 10 expanding past 16 so hopefully the silence by Notre Dame and the lack of saying no um is a, is a kind of a yes a yes in progress um but we'll we'll have to kind of wait and see how it works out worst case scenario for for Oregon and Washington in my opinion is Let's say the Big Ten says no, for some reason Notre Dame doesn't move, or whatever whatever the reason might be, Stanford gets taken. I think the ACC is absolutely begging you to join at that point because adding two teams to the ACC allows them to renegotiate that nasty contract they're stuck in. I think that the ACC is kind of the soft landing for Oregon and Washington.
0: And I think that's more desirable than any kind of Big 12 or Big 12 Pac-12 12 merger for both of those schools for a number of reasons. I'm glad you brought up the ACC because one of the other things I've seen reported and talked about so much by people online is, oh, well, now the now the SEC is going to blow up the ACC and steal all their best brands and the Big Ten is going to join in and steal some of them as well. And I don't want to go too deep into it on this podcast, but you, know, you can look at me on Twitter and follow the other stuff on Twitter that I posted about. I'm happy to talk about it on Spaces at Length, which I have already. But the ACC grant of rights appears to be very, very strong um, and very, very cost prohibitive for any school to exit. Um, and no, adding Oregon to or Washington doesn't open up the grant of rights. It doesn't allow schools an escape hatch. Notre Dame leaving doesn't allow schools an escape hatch. That's not true. Um, so you're right. What the ACC absolutely should be doing right now is actually hoping that, that the big 10 doesn't take Oregon and Washington and actually hoping obviously that they don't take Notre Dame either. Um, because then that is their, that is their opening. Oregon and Washington are by far the two most valuable brands left in the marketplace. Um, no, they they they're way above and beyond anybody in the Big Twelve and anybody else in the Pac-12 from a from a value standpoint. So if the ACC is looking at this as an opportunity to, you know, a stay viable and stay alive, you know, longer term, and b open up their ESPN contract and renegotiate it and maybe get, uh, you know, more money out of that on a on a total and per school basis then adding Oregon and Washington. And maybe, maybe also adding a couple more schools, whether they be current Pac 12 schools or current Big 12 schools, but just from a scheduling and logistics standpoint, um, that might be the best move for the ACC. And I think, I think you're right. I think that is probably the the worst case scenario for Oregon and Washington right now. But don't be, don't get it twisted. That is still a far, far, far worse scenario than going to the Big 10.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're talking probably about a, Forty, I mean, best case scenario, probably about a fifty million dollar deficit from the Big Ten to that, and so even if you don't, even if you have to accept a less than full distribution from the Big Ten, it's still a far better deal for Oregon and Washington up front than it is to go to the ACC. So, I and I, I think that that's something that probably hasn't been discussed enough as a possibility. If you're getting, depending on what the TV networks and what the additional inventory looks like. That um, they'd be adding to get to twenty, maybe you just see Oregon, Stanford, and Washington take a seventy percent cut or a sixty-five percent cut of of the total distribution. Which, if you're Oregon and Washington, still puts you two x in the lead of the ACC and the Big Twelve.
0: Right, and it does two other things. It gives you it ge- that eventually will turn into a hundred percent cut. Right, if it's six, seven, eight years down the road, you're eventually going to get a full share. And then secondly, you're in, you're in the big, the big two conferences. You have a seat at the table. You're protected forevermore. It's, it's well worth taking the hit in the short term.
1: And it's not even taking a hit because it's still a raise relative to what you've been used to.
0: True. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I think, I think that to me, I think that's probably what ends up happening. If I had to like hedge my bet and say, all right, I think that the corner four—that's the Arizona Mountain Schools—go to the Big Twelve. Oregon State and Washington State uh, go to the Mountain West. I think Oregon, Washington, Stanford, and Notre Dame go to the go to the Big Ten. And I would assume that the the three schools uh, from the Bay up are taking a percentage cut, not a full a, a full distribution, if based on the way that the numbers look currently. And I think that all because it's been pretty clear throughout this negotiation if you've been following it from the from the Fox and Big 10 side that there are more bidders than there are inventory currently for with the Big 10, which is a great position for Oregon to be in because maybe you wouldn't be considered otherwise, but you might be one overvalued by the uh you might get overvalued based on the inf- the the overinflated value of Big 10 content at this point in time. But it also puts the Big Ten in a situation where, we're fine, if we don't have to pay them a full cut, there's no reason to not bring them in because it's additional inventory for us to broadcast. Exactly. And additional brands that have our Big Ten logo on their chest. And, 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 that's a, and it also keeps football alive in the Northwest because it becomes a very, very scary situation from the Bay Area North if Oregon and Washington aren't in a power conference. Um, and I think it also allows you to consolidate on the West Coast. It makes scheduling a lot cleaner. In my opinion, a 20-team conference is kind of perfect. May, you can make arguments for 16 being better, um, but it, with the way that it would be set up in this case, where you would have five teams on the West Coast, you have your four permanent rivals, for the most part, within within like a short flight or driving distance, and then you have your four rotating games that you get through every team home and home in six years. Or five, yeah. so your five rotating games. so. Um, And and that's if they go to nine games. There's a chance they could want to go to 10 to get through that rotation faster, but I doubt it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Funny enough, 10 actually works better. A 10 game schedule works better with 18 teams than 20, but you'd only have two permanent rivals, which I don't think is enough for the Big Ten teams anyway.
1: No, there's too many trophy games existing between Big Ten rivals. I think that a four permanent rival setup is actually best for the current Big Ten teams too, because there's been a couple conversations about what it looks like in the Big Ten with three permanent rivals, and some teams are going to have to stop playing teams that they've played on a yearly basis for 80, 90 years.
0: Yeah, 20 teams, with five of those being on the West Coast, just logistically makes so much more sense than only having two or even three West Coast teams that it just doesn't doesn't make sense. But then again... This stuff doesn't always uh, you know, happen the way that we think it should. I think the other thing that t- going to 20 for the Big Ten does is it gives you everything we just talked about for the next 10 years. And then when the ACC likely gets carved up um, you know, 10 years from now, you grab four ACC schools to go to 24, and that's your eventual landing spot.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think at that point it's a pretty clear who those four Too, like You try to get Georgia Tech. Virginia, UNC, and possibly Duke.
0: Yeah, Duke or BC, one of those two probably.
1: Yeah, and you can saw – and with Georgia Tech specifically, you're able to get into the Atlanta market, which is crazy for a Big Ten school to be in the Atlanta market. Um, but again, from like an academic standpoint, they align better with the with the AU institutions in the Big Ten. So we'll see how it all ends up working out in the end. Um I, I'm, I'm hopeful for Oregon. I, I know that ultimately it's going to be a dollar and cents um, decision. I think that the investment that's been done by Phil Knight and the, the boosters and the university and over the last 25 years is enough, but we won't know until we get that acceptance letter um, and, and we get admitted into the conference. So it's going to be a stressful four or five days, maybe even longer depending on how long it takes for a decision to be made on Notre Dame's part. So we hear what's going to happen. Um, but man, if it does happen, I am so excited for the future of Oregon football. It's going to be a really, really fun ride.
0: Oh, absolutely. This revenue gap has been what we've been worried about and talking about and stressing about um, you know, for months and actually even years now. And, and this solves that problem in one fell swoop. It gets you into the big two where ultimately you need to be. Because I do think ultimately if you're not a member of those two conferences, you're not playing for a national title. You're not making the playoffs. You're not relevant in the biggest levels of college football. So you got to get there.
1: Yeah. And uh, if, if Oregon gets accepted, we'll, we'll run an emergency pod. I mean, there are so many topics to go over in that case. Um, So fingers crossed. Hopefully we all get in Um, Oregon state. I think will remain a permanent rival, just it'll be a permanent rival in the out-of-conference schedule, which is good for Oregon State because I think that at least if they're, if they're moving down a level, they'll have a consistent check coming in um, from, from a rival that they play on a yearly basis.
0: Yeah, we can just pay them to come to Odson every year, right? Something like that if we want to be pompous assholes, right? <laughs> uh, we'll see how that unfolds, but we got to make it into the big first.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the biggest piece to this puzzle. So, let's move on to our final topic here. So, we're going to take a break from from over/unders for the week and we're going to we're going to revisit that on the next pod assuming Big 10 news doesn't break between now and then. And we were talking about what we're going to be doing here is going through our list of the top 12 coaches in the Pac-12. This is head coaches. We're going to start at 12 and we're going to go to 1. We're going to talk a little bit about each, maybe where we differentiate on our um in our rankings. Uh, and I think we might have a little bit different criteria for those of you that don't know, Doug's a big data nerd. So he put together this matrix with all of his different weights and how these coaches are going to fit in. And so I think his, his will be a little interesting relative to mine where I just kind of shot from the hip and just went based on what I think about each guy. So, um, Doug, who do you have at number 12 in your coaches list?
0: Yeah, let me preface this by also saying, you know, there's some projection involved here, right? Like we don't have track records on on Dan Lanning as an example, and we don't have long track records on a few other coaches on the list as well. So there's there's obviously some some projection going on, as well as past results as a head coach, and then for those um, coaches who don't have a long head coaching. Record or maybe have a head coaching record at a different level we're we're also projecting based on coordinator experience and other things that they've done. So for me, I looked at it in my matrix in the standpoint of recruiting, maximizing your talent, what is your scheme, x's and o's capabilities, and then I kind of had a category for intangibles, and I gave everyone a one through five rating on those things um and then weighted them appropriately to come up with my my overall score. So number one on my list, um, 12 to one. We're going to work going to start at the bottom. All right. Number 12 on my list, uh, Colorado, uh, Carl Durrell. Yeah, me too. He stinks. Um,
1: the fact that they hired him really speaks to the financial bind that the Colorado athletic department's in. I'm not sure they could have made a bad hire, but the fact that they made that bad of a hire and then he made a worse hire at offensive coordinator with Mike Sanford um, I, I just don't see this ending well. I think he's by far and away the worst coach in the conference, which is saying a lot when you consider who I have at number eleven. Um, but do you have any other thoughts to add on Carl Durrell?
0: He so he was below average on all four of my my metrics, the only person to, to hold that distinction.
1: Yeah. So at eleven I've got Herm, uh Herm Edwards coach at Arizona State. It's one of those things where I think if you would have asked me this question going into the 2021 season before all the sanctions and uh speculation and all the rules that were broken came out all that that bombshell that was dropped on that uh Monday morning I would have had him probably in my top half of the conference and now because of the complete and utter dysfunction the fact that he's a sitting duck that he is roster is completely transferred out they're incapable of recruiting due to just the the circumstances they find themselves in, I think that
0: Herm is probably pretty easily the second worst coach in the conference. What say you? So he, he ended up number 10 on my list, but it, it's very close, and he easily could have been number 11. I think he's probably getting the bump for me just because he does have a, a decent track record prior to everything falling apart. Um, so that probably helped, helped him hold on to the 10th spot. But, but to your point, if we did this a year ago, he's probably in the top five or six. So he's falling like a stone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's going to be there for too much longer. Here's the question is, will ASU be out of the conference first or will Herm Edwards be out of the
0: coaching seat first? An excellent question. Um, I, I guess if it's whether you consider out of the conference being an announcement then yes, they will be out of. The, they will be announced as moving on to a different conference before he's fired. But actually leaving, I would say no. He's fired first.
1: What happens first? Does ASU play their first game in the Big Twelve, or does Herm Edwards get fired?
0: Well, for sure, Herm Edwards gets fired before they play a game in the Big Twelve.
1: You say that, but that athletic director is not firing him, and that athletic director is not getting fired unless the president gets fired, and so they're going to have to take out three guys to get rid of Herm. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. But um, who did you have at 11?
0: So I had Jake Dickard at 11. Um, mostly this is just due to lack of track record. Um, so I, I had him as below average in recruiting and average in all the other categories. And, and he ended up slightly ahead of Herm, but again, could go either way.
1: Yeah, so I had Jake Dickard at 10, so we had those flipped around. I thought he did a really good job with uh, Washington State down the stretch last year, especially considering the conditions under which the previous coach had been fired. Um, I think he's a good defensive coordinator. I think he did a good job at Wyoming and has done a good job adjusting to Washington State on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, don't really have a track record of him hiring coordinators or assistants, so we don't really know what we're going to get yet on that. But um, considering where Washington State is as a program – I don't think this is a bad spot for him to be. I just think it's a spot where we just kind of don't really have a good sample size yet. Yeah. Agreed. Excellent. So who do you have at nine?
0: At nine, I've got Jed Fish. As do I.
1: So I think we both agree here. I want to hear your reasoning first though.
0: Yeah. So again, I actually ranked him as average on all four categories. Again, there's a lot of projection here. I mean, his recruiting... Looked pretty good last season in his limited time. You know, he pulled in TMAC. He, he had some other splashy recruits. This go around, though, as we covered on a, a recent pod, like, they've loaded up. They got 16 commits, but I don't think a single one of them is a four-star even. Maybe one. So, and, and again, I know you're recruiting to a bad situation at a place that doesn't historically, you know, get a lot of recruits either. But it still seems average at best. Um you know, I think he's the right hire for them at the right time, and I do have confidence that he's probably gonna move up this list over the next few years um and especially if they move into the big twelve, I could see that being a real opportunity for them to move up even faster, but he's just there's not enough track record there,
1: yeah, I think that you can raise the profile for recruiting at a school like Arizona without showing up in the blue chip ratio like i i'm not I'm not sure I'm not looking at each individual recruit that they're bringing in. But they were at a very low point from a recruiting standpoint before he showed up. Obviously, he made some really big splashes last year on the trail, took full advantage of kind of some of the consternation at USC, Oregon, and UCLA. Um, And so I don't expect them to recreate that on the trail this year. So maybe my expectations were a little bit lower on the recruiting trail, but I think he did a good job. The one thing I'd say about Arizona last year is, yeah, they won one game but they played hard and they were actually competitive in several others. And he turned over that roster in a major, major way. I mean, 40% of that roster is different than a year ago. I think that fish is a guy that will rise this on this list. I think I've got some others that are already falling, but I'm just not ready with a one with one, one win season under fish's belt to put him any higher than this. Agreed. So at number eight, so seven and eight for me are completely interchangeable. Um, this might not make a couple of Washington fans particularly happy, but I've got DeBoer at 8 and Lanning at 7, and for both of them, it's just there's a lot of uncertainty. I understand that Lanning uh, doesn't have any head coaching experience while DeBoer has uh, a year or two at at Fresno and then some years down at the FCS level. My thing with that is that I don't think that the quality of that experience is the same as being a coordinator at a super high level like a national championship level where where landing was getting experience under guys like kirby smart and nick saban so i think that they're interchangeable at seven and eight i think that they both will benefit greatly in next year's rankings from having a sample size under their belt and us being able to see how they handle in-game situations how they run a power five program uh how their coaching hires ended up working out the coordinators how they recruit all of those things, uh, for me, I had to bore eight, landing at seven, just because based on recruiting currently, landing is performing a little bit better. But again, I think I'd really like to see a sample size from both, because I would argue that Oregon and Washington are the second and third best brands in the Pac-12 at current, and they have a lot of upside here to to, to crawl up this list fast, because I personally am not crazy about a lot of my coaches in the top six.
0: Yeah, I you didn't mention mine number eight, so I'll I'll just talk on Dan and, and Kaylin there. I have them in the same order as you but but up a notch. So I have Lanning at six and DeBoer at seven. Um I got Lanning as above average recruiter and scheme. Um I have Kalen as above average on maximizing his talent and scheme. And then I, I gave them both a slightly below average on intangibles because I think we just don't know yet on either one of them. Um I think uh it's really close between the two and like you said i think i expect both of them to move up this list over the next couple of years because i do think they're both going to have success relative to their their current schools and what the the where those programs are at so um but let me just talk about yeah go ahead so i think who i have at six is who you have at eight correct i have justin wilcox at eight i'm not I am not that high on Wilcox. I know the pe- a lot of people around this conference love to love on Justin and Wilcox. I just don't. I just don't see it. I have him as average in pretty much every category. I did give him above average in intangibles, but I average everywhere else. I just to me, he's not a good recruiter. I don't think he's done a great job, really, of like anything extraordinary at maximizing talent. The results on the field seem to be at or under performance expectations every year. I don't think he's anything particularly, you know, great scheme wise. So I just, I don't, I don't see it. I I wouldn't take him over landing or DeBoer, even in a, you know, in an equal situation, I would take both of them over Wilcox. So I, that's why I have him below them.
1: I agree with everything you just said, but I know because I have a track record that Wilcox is an average coach. I don't know that landing and DeBoer are average coaches in the PAC 12 yet. so. I'm just doing this. Maybe my bias is a little bit different. I'm using history to benefit Wilcox here. But I would be very surprised if that a year from now, Wilcox is above either of those two guys. Because like you said, he doesn't recruit at a particularly high level. We talked about a lot of the institutional problems that are at Cal, so it's not all his fault. But as a defensive coordinator, he was solid but not great other than one year at, at Wisconsin, which is immediately following Dave Aranda, where he just ran Dave Aranda's system. Uh, with all of the same players. So I, I'm not really one of those guys that's sold that Wilcox is some like next-level brainiac defensive coordinator. Um, his offensive hires have continually been horrible. He's been unable to place a good offensive coordinator yet. Uh, quarterback play, the inability to recruit a quarterback has been a problem. There's really nothing about Wilcox's resume at Cal that gives me a ton of confidence that he's a really good coach. But I think it just speaks to how horrible this conference is that Wilcox is the sixth best coach on my list.
0: You just mentioned someone, you know, who's who's primed to fall down this list and who's really living in their current spot based on past performance and and in my mind, past performance that's getting further and further in the rearview mirror. And that's my number five, David Shaw. Um, this is someone I could easily see falling behind, landing DeBoer, and maybe even Wilcox and Fish. You know, in the next couple of years. Um, I just there's and again he's got some institutional challenges at Stanford that we've talked about many times and we all know. But I also don't think he's doing anything, you know, dynamic uh, on the field or off to to justify being um, as heralded as he once was. You know, four or five years ago, his scheme is dated. He refuses to change it. He's stubborn and obstinate about it, um, and I think that's holding him back. I I agree.
1: So I, first of all, I have sh- I had shot five. And I could see him falling down this list further. So th- there's two sides to this. There's the institutional side, and then there's the Shaw side. Institutionally, the fact that they were they were unprepared for the early signing period really kneecapped their recruiting efforts for a short period of time there. It seems that they've been starting to get, a, get athletes admitted a little bit earlier so that they can compete for some of the higher-level kids that they were getting previously, which is going to help them over time, but it's going to take time to get those guys cycling back into the, into the uh, program and, and, and kind of filling out the two deeps. Um, the inability to keep redshirt seniors, I think, has been a problem for a program like Stanford. But also, Shaw is, I think, the only coach on this list, except for the guys that haven't been head coaches before, who's never fired an assistant. Never. Their defense has been so bad for so long that I don't know if there's like incriminating evidence that's being held against Shaw But there's no reason that defensive coordinator should still be the the, the coach at Stanford. Offensively, I've been, I've been, I kind of disagree with you at least a little bit. I think that they've adjusted to the personnel. They haven't had good offensive lines, they haven't had good running backs. They've been having to rely on quarterback play and throwing the ball a lot more. Um, But I still think that they're lagging behind in some sense offensively, mostly due to personnel because their offensive line, again, has not been good since Bryce Love was there. And that's been a long time now. <laughs> so I, I don't really know. Shaw's, on this, Shaw's high on this list because he's one of two coaches that are currently in the conference that have won the conference. He's won a Rose Bowl. He's won, I think he won a Fiesta Bowl as well as a head coach. He's won at a high level there. It hasn't been recently. But just because of how poor some of the other coaches are or, or some of their resumes are, I think he fits at five perfectly.
0: But you got at number four.
1: I've got so I've got Smith at four. Uh, head coach at Oregon State, Jonathan Smith. I I think he is a better coach than this, but I think that the program that he's at keeps him here. I think he's getting more out of his roster than you should expect to get out of that roster, specifically given the low level of quarterback play he's gotten. Like he got a lot out of guys that were not very good players, guys like Jake Browning. Um But he can't recruit above a certain level at Oregon State, and so he's just never going to be able to win the conference, in my opinion, or be able to kind of take that next step and become a more nationally prominent pro- team. And so for me, he's just kind of stuck at four. Um I, I just think that the coaches above him have just accomplished substantially more but I don't know that the coaches above him are necessarily better coaches.
0: Yeah. All right, John, it, it's hard to judge a coach like Jonathan Smith just because of the situation he's in. Right. Like he seems to be doing, you know, punching above his weight class, if you will, at Oregon state, you know, he gets, he's, he gets really high marks for me for maximizing the talent he has. Um, I think his scheme work is really strong. I think he has strong intangibles I mean, his recruiting is average, but how can it be better than average there? Like you're handicapped uh, in recruiting. So it, it, he's a tough person to evaluate. I have him and Chip Kelly tied essentially between th- the third and fourth spot. So you can put him either way. But um, I, I think he's a perfect fit for Oregon State. Um, and he's he's maximizing everything he can do there and, and good for him and good for their program.
1: It's funny that you say that about Chip Kelly. So for me...
0: Obviously, Chip Kelly's
1: record at Oregon, um, all the the 10 and 11 win seasons, the national title appearance, the uh, Rose Bowl and Fiesta Bowl wins are vastly superior to anything on Smith's resume. But I also just did it this way, too, where neither one of them are particularly dynamic recruiters. But if I was just going to hire an offensive coordinator, I'd rather have Kelly than Smith. And so for me, Kelly was a no-brainer at three. Smith was a clear four. Um, how do you, how do you feel about Kelly? Is that kind of where you have him?
0: Yeah, I, I was mostly judging him off of what he's doing now at UCLA. Um, but you know, I gave him a five in scheme. I gave him, you know, high marks in and, and talent and maximizing his talent and, um, and the intangibles recruiting. I mean, that's probably below average for what he should be doing at that school with where they're located and the resources they have. So that's always been his problem there. Um, yeah, I mean, I you can make the argument for putting Kelly above Smith and I wouldn't disagree with that argument at all. Uh, you know, I, I just kind of think Smith is getting more out of his situation than he should. And Kelly is probably getting less than he should. So that's kind of what broke the tie for me.
1: See, I don't think that Kelly is getting less out of the talent than he should. I just think that he's recruiting less talent than he should.
0: Right, so less out of the situation. <laughs> it's like, it's
1: one of those situations where like if Chip yeah, Kelly, well, like, like, he
0: doesn't have better talent.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's his fault. And so, like, if Chip Kelly recruited like Mario Cristobal, Chip Kelly might be the best head coach in college football. Like, from an X's and O's standpoint, I'm not taking anybody on this list over Chip Kelly. I'm just not. Not offensively. I mean, I really like Lincoln Riley, but there's just no chance. Like, Chip Kelly has one of the most sophisticated run games in college football. I mean, he has the NFL background. I, I just, I really like Chip Kelly as a coach, as a play caller. I can't stand him as a recruiter and a CEO. And so he's hard stuck at three for me. I think he'll fall down this list if guys like Lanning and DeBoer perform well. Um, But it sucks because he does have that run at Oregon, which is, I mean, his run at Oregon is better than any of these coaches' runs in their entire career. That's true. So that has to be factored in on some level. So I'll be be interested to hear what you have for one and two. Um, I have Whittingham at two. Who do you have at two?
0: Also have Winningham at two. I know that probably goes against conventional wisdom with a lot of the experts who make these lists, um, and I, you know, I, I couldn't argue too strongly against putting him at number one. But I guess I will. Um, I think his recruiting is above average for his situation. I think he does as good or a better job as, of maximizing talent as anybody. So he got, he got the full marks for me on that one. Scheme wise, I think I gave him above average there because I I don't know that he has a set scheme that he's beholden to, but I think he's really smart about adjusting his schemes to his talent and to the situation, you know, year to year. And so I give him marks for that flexibility. And then I think he's he's a top of the board as far as the intangible stuff goes. His teams are always prepared. They're always ready to play. They're always motivated. They're always you know maximizing. You know what they they should get out of things. I guess you could knock him a little bit for for starting the wrong quarterback last year, but he did quickly adapt. So you know, there's there's kind of a flip side of that as well. So for me, he's a strong two, well above number three. Um, I have him, you know, not close to number one, but not far either. Like I, he's, it's not like neck and neck, but but he's a clear number two.
1: Yeah, I I think that Whittingham having Ludwig locks him in at number two. Because the problem for them has never been defense. It's been the offensive side of the ball. And ever since Ludwig has got there, they've been able to really step up and perform at a higher level. Whether it was the Tyler Huntley year in 2019 or now with Cameron Rising in 2021 going into 2022, I think that Ludwig is a really, really good fit for what Whittingham wants to do philosophically. And I think that's kind of what separates, uh, I think a lot of things separate Whittingham and Wilcox, but I think the ability to find the coordinator that fits is one of the biggest pieces he found the offensive coordinator that can be the yin to his Yang offensively to his defensive philosophy. I think that Morgan Scalley is a good defensive coordinator. They, I think that they annually get more out of their roster than anybody else in the conference. But I think that they're just, I don't think that there's enough upside left in that program to push him to the number one spot over, over Lincoln Riley.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. So moving on to Riley, um, he was the number one for me. It pains me to say it, <laughs> since he's the coach at USC. But I mean, how many playoffs has he been in? Um, you know, he 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 took over seamlessly at Oklahoma, and you could say raised their profile even after he took over. You know, as a, after you know, as a first-time head coach there. So uh, he's obviously a top-notch recruiter, and, and along with the rest of his staff, um, does a pretty good job of maximizing his talent. His scheme is is certainly strong. You know, top five offensive minds in the country intangibles you know i have no reason to say they're not at least above average so he he checks all the boxes there and comes in in the in a pretty solid number one position
1: yeah certified quarterback whisper, back-to-back heisman trophy winners um multiple playoff appearances i think they won the big big 12 three straight times with him as the head coach might be four straight times like He has a a very, very strong resume coming into this conference, and I think it immediately puts him at number one, especially given the fact that he's going to be recruiting to the best recruiting brand in the conference. So, yeah, Lincoln Riley is an easy number one for me. I actually think that there's a pretty solid gap between him and Whittingham. Um, But, again, I think that this list overall just speaks to why why this conference is splitting, because they've made horrible hires. and. They've sat on bad hires, and there hasn't been the motivation or the money from an administrative standpoint to right the wrongs of bad hiring. So um, this is is a, a crazy list relative to, I was listening to a Big Ten podcast the other night where they did this with that conference, and I would argue that the 14th best coach in the Big Ten is probably the sixth best
0: coach in this conference. And that says something. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I, I think what you said about bad hires and sitting on them and and everything else just goes to one of the reasons why this conference is disintegrating and USC and UCLA left. Although, you know, to be fair, USC and UCLA have mismanaged themselves for the last fifteen years, which has certainly hurt not just themselves but the rest of the conference as well. But but moving beyond that, I think it's twofold. One, the lack of revenue you know, revenues to actually make and keep good hires is one problem. But even where those revenues have existed, the lack of interest from the athletic departments and the universities as a whole for being competitive in college football and putting it at at the top and taking it seriously and making it the important thing that it needs to be has been ultimately the downfall of this conference.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think that hopefully the schools that get a second chance in a bigger conference, whether that's the Big Ten or the schools that go to the Big 12, like, I, I hope that they realize the mistakes that they made and they learn from them. And they don't just write it all off as Larry Scott's fault because while Larry Scott is largely responsible for the crumbling of the Pac-12, so are the administrations and, and, and the athletic directors. And so I'm really hoping that we see, we see some accountability and course correction on their behalf.
0: And and let me add one more fault, and people don't want to hear this, but the fan bases along the West Coast that are generally apathetic to football, to college football, to football in general, and it's not every fan base, but it's a lot of them in this conference. And ultimately, it doesn't matter how good your commissioners does or what kind of TV deal you have or anything else. If if the fans aren't watching and tuning in and going to the games and buying the merch – that 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 apathy will have an effect on the conference and i think ultimately did i think that's the number one thing that is causing this conference to fall apart is that lack of fan apathy
1: i agree but it's also leadership and lack of quality product that is that is causing the apathy it's 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 oh. both I, I, I agree but i think it's a combination of all things
0: yeah that that's fair it is both
1: cuz again you look at cal as a perfect example look at what cal was Back under Jeff Tedford, and look at what Cal is now. It's not even a shadow of what it once was. Cal used to fill that stadium up. It used to be a crazy environment that we didn't want to go play in. Now it's a library. It's three quarters empty. No one's there. The team that's playing in it doesn't have any talent. The coaches are uninspiring. They're underpaid. It's just it's just a really really tough spot. So.
0: Yeah, I, and I will say this to, to piggyback on what you said. Those teams that end up in the Big Ten, their administrations, their leadership, their athletic departments, and their fans are all going to have to step up their game because all of those, all of those fan bases and all of those schools are all in for the most part. The same thing for the, the corner schools. If they end up in the Big 12, guess who cares about football? The rest of the teams in the Big 12. They freaking care. Especially the
1: teams that are coming up from the AAC. Like if you don't think that Cincinnati fans and, and UCF fans are just jacked and and Houston fans are jacked and ready to go, like you're sorely confused. So hopefully like all of these fan bases use this as a learning lesson and, and a reset button to enhance the brand of their program. Like if you want your program to eventually be able to climb out of wherever it's at, you gotta support it. And that's why I get really frustrated when Oregon fans, like, I understand. It would really suck if we didn't get into the Big Ten. But I'm not going anywhere. Like I, My butt's still going to be in that same seat it's been in since I was a six-year-old kid in Austin Stadium on Saturdays. And I'm going to still watch every away game on television or go to as many as I can. I'm still going to nerd out on the recruiting. Nothing is changing for me because I understand that if, if we quit, then it diminishes the brand. So it is what it is. We hopefully Hopefully these fan bases, these administrations, Coaching staffs and, and the leadership of these conferences realize what it takes now, um, and don't take this reset for granted.
0: And I think that is a good place to end this episode. I think we're about ninety minutes in of jam-packed content. We hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Be uh, be on the lookout for our next episode, whether it's a week from now or whether it's an emergency pod. Hopefully, we'll have some clarity on the realignment situation for Oregon and the rest of the Pac-12. QB, thank you so much for joining. I think this has been an awesome episode. I can't wait for people to hear it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Doug. It's always a great time to sit and talk this stuff. Guys, I really appreciate all the support. Um, I have a feeling and I'm hopeful that we'll be recording another episode in the next few days here with some really good news for Oregon. So uh, keep on the lookout for that and 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 keep us posted.